Welcome to Weekly Neurosis. Welcome into Weekly Neurosis. I'm Nate. I'm Ethan. And this is the Elixir episode. Yeah. I like that word a lot. I do too. It's got a nice ring to it. I think we struggled coming up with a unifying theme, but yeah. we kind of kind of fell into place. It did. Well, we were thinking like rhyme, you'll know it for a minute, but that was kind of like, eh. Mm, yeah. And then I feel like we can save that for a better rhyme. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think cauldron, that was the other one. That's just no good. Mm. I don't know. Unless there's, I don't know, maybe. You never know. Maybe. So, know. Nate, why did we pick Elixir? Well, we picked Elixir because our movie of the week is the new Blair Witch film, mm-hmm. the 2016 edition, and our album of the week is Miles Davis's Bitches Brew, the revolutionary jazz album, and our beer of the week, and this is very rare, I don't know that this will ever happen again, is also called Bitches Brew, made by Dogfish Head Brewing Company, uh, named after the album. Mm-hmm. I feel like it was created for the 40, 40th anniversary. 40th anniversary. Of this album. I, I don't I don't foresee this ever happening again. Yeah, the label on the beer literally is the cover of the album. Yeah. Which is phenomenal and yep. amazing. Yep, and I've had this stashed in my my little stashet down here for about a year. Yeah, and I think I'm, I'm excited. I know I, this is a beer I've been trying to get for years, ever since it probably came out, because the album is a favorite of mine, and... When I first saw this, I thought it was just too cool. Yeah. And, and when you've I had it on the damn shelf forever, and every t- time I come here, I'm like, we're going to drink you soon. And then you're like, just let's just do Bitches Brew this week. <laughs> yeah, sure. Blair Witch, no. But I, I agreed. And I, the reason I found this, actually, is because it literally was like at Woodman's on the east side of Madison, there's like a shelf, a wooden shelf like this with bombers, and it's totally unorganized. And I happened to push one thing to the side, and it was in there. Oh, and when amazing. I went to check out the guy, I was like, oh, man, it's a good find. I didn't even know we had this in here. Yeah. It was like crazy. Yeah. So, okay, well, how about you crack it and I'll read it. here. So what it says on the bottle is, in honor of the 40th anniversary of the original release of Bitches Brew, Miles Davis's 1970 uh, paradigm-shifting landmark fusion breakthrough, we've created our own Bitches Brew, a bold, dark beer that's a fusion of three threads of imperial stout and one thread of honey beer with a gesho root. It is a gustieri analog to Miles's masterpiece. Uh, it comes in at 9% ABV. And about 38 IBU, and its availability is listed as rotating, and that is quite possibly the darkest head I've ever seen on a beer. Yeah. Nate just poured it, and uh, first of all, it is 
insanely dark. I can't see even a shred of light through this beer. The dark, the head on it is super dark, which makes me believe that there are some very roasty malts, which sort of makes sense given the fact that it's listed as an American double slash imperial stout. Let me pour a little bit into yours. Okay. Not over the computer, of course. Mm-hmm. Perfect. All right. So this is exciting. It looks amazing. I'll let you take the first sip, though. The first sip. And I'll do a play-by-play. <clears throat> All right. Nate is picking up the glass. He's smelling it like a dummy. He's like a dummy. He's whifting the glass. This is an exciting moment, folks. Really, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. Well, I would imagine it's pretty stouty. It's stouty. Earth. I don't know. Earthy is the right word. Well, okay. I see that gesho root is one of the ingredients, and I don't know what the hell that is. So I'm gonna look it up here. Let's see, Gesho root, Gesho root, Ramnus prinoides, Ramnus prinoides, the shiny leaf buckthorn, is an African shrub or small tree in the family Ramenicae. It was first descri- described by French botanist Charles Louis Lehertrie de Bertu in 1783. Wow. That doesn't help me at all. So is it crazy and hard yeah, to pin well, down it's, just it's, like the it's, album? It's way, like it's out there in terms of a beer. I'll give the play-by-play. Ethan is is sniffing the glass. And here he goes. Spit it out. It's like, what the hell? Hmm. It's different. It's very, very different. Okay. Well, it's funny, and and I think I would have picked up on this even after not reading the description here. First and foremost, definitely that dark chocolatey stout flavor but it definitely has like a sweet finish yeah like big time and you're right it does have sort of an earthy thing going on it yeah as well. it's gotta be and again they this they're kind of known for doing these weird like hybrid versions of of beer right yeah dogfish head uh, is definitely known for their interesting ingredients list i think it's pretty good yeah i like it i'd do totally do it again i would crack one of these puppies open and throw in my vinyl of bitches brew and just be the biggest hipster ever, ever. But I, I, I don't think. I wonder if there is. I'm sure there are. I shouldn't say that. I'm sure there's other beers that are named after albums. Oh but, yeah, but it's I know a there's a bit. there's one beer called the Trooper, which is named after a Iron Maiden song. There's always like pop culture things. I know there's like like a Klingon beer. There's a couple of Game of Thrones beers. Um. I would imagine there's another one named Kicking after an album. out there. I mean, I suppose this is the trademarking. It'd be a little tricky. You know what? I just read earlier today, I saw on the news on Facebook that the band Deftones, who an album, we talked about their most recent album, they have a beer now. And I know this is kind of a non sequitur, but the band Hanson, you know, of Umbop fame, who I saw in concert in like 2008, by the way. You did. They have a beer called Umhop, which is an IPA. That is clever. It is that's pretty. pretty. That's good. That's good. <laughs> solid like beer marketing. Right that's there. right. That's right. Uh, but it's good. I approve. No, it's awesome. I approve too. How much, if I may ask, was this bomber? I believe it was fifteen. And I will say this: a lot of time, Dogfish Heads bombers to me, while I enjoy them, are very pricey. They're pricey, and a lot of the times, I don't think they're worth it. This yeah. one, if I saw for that same price, I would buy again. Yeah, I think it's really good. Yeah, and I noticed the because I just picked up their uh, Squall IPA, 
which is a bomber. And I noticed that the price had dropped significantly. Like it was maybe like seven ninety nine or eight ninety nine. Mm-hmm. But that's because a lot of like stone brewing has showed up in Appleton now, and their prices aren't too horrible. I was at Target the other day, and they had a whole stone brewing oh, God. wall. Yeah. So taking a picture of this bad boy so everyone can see the glory of it. Nate's in the background creeping. It's not what makes it so that picture so much better is that you're not fo- in focus. <laughs> I'm just having a good time podcasting. Look at me. That is incredible. No, this is awesome. Yeah. Now I can I can actually check it in on Untapped. I'll do that in the break though. Yes. But um on to our definition of the word of our theme elixir. Elixir is a noun. Um, it is a magical or medicinal potion, a preparation that was supposed to be able to change metals into gold sought by alchemists, or a preparation supposedly able to prolong life indefinitely. Those are more examples, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, what does elixir mean to you? Yeah, pretty, you know, pretty straightforward. I don't think this is one we can dig into too much, but uh, you know, I'm a big fan of fantasy stuff. You know, Lord of the Rings doesn't necessarily have a lot of like witchcraft type stuff going on in it, but. Most recently, we, we saw the movie Warcraft, right? Yep. And I think there's definitely an elixir element to that where I picture a wizard or a witch of some sort brewing this concoction that can do whatever, turn you into a toad or bewitch your mind or something. So I guess I picture a giant like metal cauldron that's like glowing green and there's like smoke and sparks coming out of it. That's what I picture. Yeah. Kind of, kind of same boat for me. I always think of like... The Great Unknown. I think of a lot of, like, false advertising, like... Oh, geez, you are digging into it. Well, they're like, you know, you always hear about it's like the elixir of... And everyone's looking for an elixir that'll keep them young, right? Uh, There's nothing really out there like that except for a solid diet and exercise. (laughs) And even still, you're going to age. But it's, yeah, again, same thing. Magical, kind of... um, I think I reference a lot of fantasy, like books and stories and movies... Uh, but that's the theme this week. Well, now that you said, like, people looking for elixirs, I think of the movie Sweeney Todd, the the uh, Tim yep. Burton movie okay. where they have the miracle elixir that supposedly makes your hair grow back. That just yep. popped into my head. Yeah. Yeah. And those are, there's a ton of them like that. I mean, tons of movies that are about it. So For sure. And, yeah, the Blair Witch, witches, they, they're known for making elixirs and make you do all sorts of crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's our that's our theme, elixir. Um, on to our high-priority news items, a sad one. R.I.P. Arnold Palmer, golfing extraordinaire, has a drink named after him. Mm-hmm. Very, Famous man. Very popular, very common drink. Yeah, and he passed away. And I know the at least the golfing world, and I think the greater world in general, a lot of people were uh, like sending out their, like, oh, rest in peace messages, because he had a pretty wide scope. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's pretty sad news, but... Uh... One of those names where I'm not big into golfing, but it's like, well, Arnold Palmer. I mean, that's somebody we know. The Arnold Palmer. The Arnold Palmer. Yeah, he has a good uh, ESPN ad that isn't that funny, but it is funny. He's in the cafeteria, and I think it was Stuart Scott, who also passed away, hmm. um, is like making a, watching him making an Arnold Palmer, and he's like putting like half iced tea and half lemonade, and then he like walks away. And he's like, how does he do it? And they start trying to do it, and he walks back up. He's like, "You're doing it all wrong." And he just walks back away again. It's that's, like the fun. It's like a funny little. That's amazing. Little and if anecdote. you want to really kick up your old Palmer, add a little bit of Jack Daniels. Yeah, spruce that puppy up. Does that have a different name? Probably. It's a Schmarnold Dahmer. <laughs> it would be like a Jarmold 
Dahmer. That's good when you walk up to the bar. Like, yeah, get a Can I get a Darnold Dahmer? And they just give you a bottle of whiskey. They're like, here you go. This is what you need. You're halfway on your way now. <laughs> um, and also then, uh, Woody Allen's Amazon exclusive TV show, Crisis in Six Scenes, has premiered. And the reviews are in. And I did look into this. Not very good so far. Yeah, pretty uh, lukewarm reception. I wouldn't say, like, scathing. Yeah. But uh, I know it was kind of a big deal during its production because Miley Cyrus is in it. And, you know, everybody's like, oh, she freaked out or whatever a couple years ago um so i was kind of hoping it would be good but i don't think this will stop me from watching it you know why because his last like two or three movies have not been well received and i really enjoyed them i really liked irrational man with uh walking phoenix and emma stone and i really liked magic in the moonlight with emma stone and uh colin firth yes i mean i enjoy i i'm not the biggest woody allen fan but i quite honestly have enjoyed his work lately and i'm kind of interested in seeing this and he and i agree with you my my opinion of woody allen's movies has always been that movies and productions or is that you could they kind of take a little while to marinate sure most of them do i know i've seen a lot of his his stuff the first time but i'm like oh not that bad. and then i watched it again and i'm like well you know mm-hmm. kind of grows i mean and that may be the natural effect of seeing like a film twice but right. i'll still probably give this a shot because i mean it's interesting Right, and, and Woody Allen is one of those guys where he's, like, synonymous with super, like, intellectual stuff. Like, his yeah. writing is all very based on high, like, assuming the audience knows a little bit about art and theater and philosophy and stuff. Um, so I think it can be a little bit tough to swallow sometimes if you're not necessarily, and, if, and I'm guilty of this too, maybe not the most well-versed, most intelligent person in the world. So I feel like a lot of the humor in his work often kind of goes over my head, but I even look at something like his most famous movie, uh, Annie Hall. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I I enjoy the movie. I think it's a movie that I appreciate more than I enjoy because it's it was like such a wacky movie at the time and nobody had really seen a movie structured like that before. But just, I think that's, like, with his most famous movies, I kind of feel the same way. And I, I'm actually more drawn to his stuff that isn't as well-received just because I, I don't know. I think I, I, I think I, I just understand it a little bit more. Yeah. I don't know. And there's nothing wrong going against the curve. I mean, the curve isn't always right. Sure. You know, so might as well give it a shot. Amazon, if you have Amazon Prime, I assume. Yes. You can watch it. And from what I understand, it's six episodes that are, like, half to, like, 20-something minutes because apparently total... It's like an like two and a half hours long, which is, you know, pretty much just a movie. <laughs> but um, yeah, it hasn't received good reviews. But I bet I bet you would Woody Allen fans should check it out anyway. Yeah, for sure. That is our opening segment, and uh, when we come back, we're gonna do our movie of the week and all the the cool stuff. And this week, we're gonna do something cool after by the numbers too. We're gonna do uh, predictions, mm-hmm. which is a new thing for us. We're gonna give it a shot. Um, in the break, you're gonna hear um. The trailer for Blair Witch. Lots of screaming. Lots of screaming. Cracking. Crackling of like tree branches. And yeah. I don't think maybe a little bit of music. A little bit of like ambient stuff. Yeah. yeah. But either way, you can hear the trailer. And when we come back, we're going to review the new horror film, The Blair Witch. We could announce this with you right back. What is that? The guy who uploaded this video said it was from a tape he found in the Black Hills woods. <laughs> I think that might be my sister. You really think your sister could still be out there after all these years? If there is any chance that I could find out what happened to her, I need to try. 
Legend said there's been a curse on these woods. Do you believe in the stories about the Blair Witch? Welcome back into Weekly Roast. I'm Nate. I'm Ethan. And this this is our Movie of the Week segment this week. The brand new Blair Witch. Boom! Okay, so this movie's plot. <laughs> All right. Boom. A young man and his friends venture into the Black Hills Forest in Maryland to uncover the mystery surrounding his missing sister. We know her by the name of Heather from the original film, of course. Many believe her disappearance 17 years earlier is connected to the legend of the Blair Witch. At first, the group is hopeful, especially when two locals act as guides through the dark and winding woods. As the night wears on, a visit from a menacing presence soon makes them realize that the legend is all too real and more sinister than they could have ever imagined. This movie, <laughs> this movie stars James Allen McCoon, Kelly Hernandez, Corbin Reed, Brandon Scott, Wes Robinson, and Valerie Curry. Directed by Mr. Adam Wingard. Written, written by Simon Barrett. Edited by Luis Siofi. Siofi? <laughs> and cinematography by Robbie Baumgartner. Uh, this film, film, filming was done mostly in Vancouver, British Columbia, up there in Canada, and, but was uh, also done some in Los Angeles, California. Uh, and some fun notes about this movie. This movie's true identity is a sequel, as we've talked about on this podcast before, to the classic Blair Witch Project was kept secret for around five years. It was only revealed a few months ago to truly be a sequel, and director Adam Wingard stated that the original movie was about being lost in the woods and that this one was about being chased. So, Nate, what did you think about Blair Witch, the witch? The witch! (laughs) Well, I thought it was was pretty good. I really liked it. Um, The very, very beginning part wasn't my favorite, more based in in kind of the reality, but uh, once they get into the the wooded scenes, I really liked how it developed along. Um, I thought they tied in the old film a little little bit here and there, but it was kind of the whole time you're, you're kind of linked to that original original story and then uh throughout i think what i like most about it is like he went in think thinking he was kind of gonna kind of be like the original but i thought it was a little bit more hardcore um mm-hmm. and I, I i thought they did it in a a good way it sure. was kind of was kind of my opinion of it. how about you yeah i um i really liked this movie a whole lot i actually saw it twice not because i was like so dead in love with it that i had to see it again but i had the opportunity to see it again and um yeah i really i really enjoy this movie i think it uh i was quite honestly surprised after I saw the movie and went home and saw that it has been so negatively received by critics and audiences for the most part. Yeah, I agree. Um, Because I thought, much like you, that they do a pretty impeccable job of connecting this with the original, mainly, I mean, certainly directly by the way of the brother, but that stuff doesn't seem that important. But by expanding on the mythology and doing some like super surprisingly mind-bending and surreal things with the movie as soon especially near the end of the movie but uh yeah i really liked it i was especially the first time i saw it i gotta be totally honest i 
was this movie freaked me out. I mean, mm-hmm. it really, the, the, especially the final act in this movie, um, it was maybe the most anxiety-ridden I've been by a movie in a couple of years. It really got under my skin to the point where I was like having trouble watching the screen because I was <laughs> just so tense. Mm-hmm. And I think we can we can talk about this too. I had much less of an issue with the, the beginning part. I actually feel like the first, you know, 15, 20 minutes of the movie was pretty strong. And then there was maybe like a 15, 20 minute gap where I don't think it totally fell off, but it definitely slowed down quite a bit to the point where I was like, all right, let's get things moving. But for the most part, I think it makes up for it by having, uh, in in my opinion, in my experience, just one of the most kind of relentless, all out, brutally intense finales I've seen in a movie in a while. Yeah. And it was once it, once it gets into the action of the film, it's, and it's probably only if you're going to see it in theaters, but it's, it gets loud it's scary. It's dark. You don't know what's going to happen. And anytime anyone's alone, you you're fearing for them. Right. And I was I was right there with you when I left. I I literally I, I think my wife had texted me like, hey, call me because she wanted me to pick something up. And I just I went called her and when she picked up the phone, I was like, I need a I need a drink. Yeah. Like because it's like your mind is like, holy shit, what did I just just witness? Mm-hmm. But the begin. The only reason I really have an issue at the beginning is that it felt like too much like the movie version of a documentary like it just felt a little too real like you're not real but like it's really hard to explain just as if it was supposed to be like a a documentary that was filmed on a set that's kind of how it felt sure and it was only maybe the first like five minutes of the film right i think a lot is being said about this movie in that i think in a way it was sort of destined to not be well received because one of the things about the original whether you love it or hate it one of the reasons why it's seen as sort of a classic was because it is so stunningly realistic. And I think once you really understand that, yeah, none of that was was real, you really appreciate how incredible of a movie that original is in terms of the acting and how creative the filmmakers were. Um, And one of the reasons I think a lot of people have been turned off by this is because by nature of modern technology, you can't make a movie that gritty anymore. Um, And I think to a fault, I do think maybe the movie does look a little bit too polished, a little bit too overproduced. So that found footage element isn't as powerful. And I think maybe as a result, yeah, some of that stuff at the beginning might seem staged. It really didn't for me at all, but I can definitely, definitely see it. Um, But what I've heard a lot of people really begging on this movie saying, oh, well, these, these cameras are too crisp and clear. It doesn't look, I'm like, well, you have to realize that this is a movie that is set in 2014, if I remember right. Yeah, and I mean that this the, the nature of technology, digital cameras, the, the technology has changed. So I didn't really cross my mind until other people had had mentioned it. But uh, I know what you, I can see what you mean, though. Yeah, and and the thing is, I have, I have a major. I would have a major issue if someone were to come up with me and up to me and say like, oh, even the night scenes towards the rest of the movie felt like staged because they they premise the fact that the girl i think it's the girlfriend or yeah. was it a friend of the main she was just the, a friend there was a little bit of romantic chemistry yeah but, yeah but they they preface it by saying she's like a film nut and right. she has all this expensive equipment these little earpieces that are camera like someone could have that technology and you can film 4k footage on a on a camera right nowadays so that, it's not like super rare yeah that stuff didn't bother me i thought that if anything it was sort of it's a it was a believable way to continue using the found footage format like the original film but be able to be a little bit more creative and do do a couple more things with it. So I really enjoyed that. And certainly uh, when you're getting to the more intense elements of, of this movie, I don't think, I mean, it, it's a totally different movie from the original. It is not 
it is not subdued. It is loud. There are jump scares in this movie. Um, but I think that was by design. Instead of just doing a very quiet, basically remake of the original, they decided to pretty much go all out, show you more, do more, without showing you so much that it seemed excessive. Yeah. Um, so I, I was really impressed with it. I, I felt as, you know, something not to think too hard about because you could certainly pick this movie apart logically, I think. Um, although some of the story elements without uh, without spoiling anything get sort of twisted in a way that I think are kind of interesting in a way that if you try to put this movie on a timeline, it's pretty much impossible, which is one of the scariest things about it, I think. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just felt like it, it as that kind of movie where you just go into it and enjoy and really just give yourself to it. It just was a home run to me. Yeah. And I thought that um, when they when they introduce kind of bigger moments in the film, uh, having to do with like time and and lightness and dark, that's not really giving anything away. Right. But they do it in a way where they present it to you, and it's kind of you know it's linear. You understand it, but then they throw something in in a snap that causes you to be like, oh my god! Right. And they do that throughout the film whenever there's a major plot point, which is kind of genius. And they did it in a, a pretty. Um, they didn't by no means did it in like a corny way. Mm-mm. Like you feel like, oh, I could, I could think that I would be thinking that. Right. You know, so in that way it is very realistic. Right. And I, and I really appreciate how they expand on the original lore of the, of the Blair Witch mythology. They add some more stories and ideas of what this witch is capable of and what makes these woods so scary that made me want to go and watch the original again, because it sort of changes how you view what happened to those people in the original and what maybe is, um, happening in these woods in general and how it ties to the original just in small pieces it's it's pretty i think it's pretty smart stuff and i don't think it's going to quite get the i don't it's not a genius movie by any by any means because a lot of it is just boo 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 you know jump in your face and loud noises and stuff which um i think if if there's somebody out there who's really super into found footage movies like they probably won't like this either because it's really not that pure of a found footage movie. I, no, I feel like no. a lot of the sound effects and stuff are cl- clearly edited in post and things aren't actually happening that loud. So maybe it's it's not, to me, it's not as close to as realistic as the original. But I don't think they were necessarily going for that. No. And I mean, there's a, I have to think maybe like a three or four minute segment where they're like running from, you know, what they think could be chasing them. Where it's like literally a hardcore metal concert going on, but it's like screams and running and crashes. Mm -hmm. And the sound like hits you like a wall of, you know, water. And it was just insane. I mean, I haven't really seen anything like that. Yeah, the sound in this was incredible, especially near, again, I can't emphasize how, to me, impactful the last act of this movie was and how truly intense. And like, it disturbed me in a way and that very few horror movies do where I really felt like, I was witnessing something pretty intense, and I was very convinced. I think also, in part, we didn't really mention the acting, especially from the main core of people, is pretty good. There was one guy who I thought was maybe hamming it up a little bit, one of the actors who plays one of the local people they team up with. Yeah. I felt like he he was fine, but I felt like he thought he was in a little bit hammier of a movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That, so that kind of stuck out to me, but I just, it just kind of worked for me. And in, by no means is this going to be like seen as a classic and stuff but as a horror movie as something just viscerally intense outside of me having some issues with the pacing in a, in a couple parts i i mean i i was very i and i had high expectations going into this and it really lived up to them so i don't know man i really had fun with this yeah i did too and again if you if you see this in the theaters it's i don't want to say it's an exhausting film but if you if you leave there feeling nothing 
Like, I feel like something's borderline possibly wrong with you. I think if you're doing that, and I'm not calling anybody out here because I'm sure people who are listening to this, because most people I've talked to hated this movie. Yeah. And I think found footage movies in general, they should just stop pushing these movies on wide audiences because if you nitpick this, it's going to fall apart. If you go in saying, well, this isn't going to be scary and you're looking for reasons to hate it, you're going to hate it. And that's true with pretty much any movie. So I don't really know. Some of the people I've talked to or some of the opinions I've read, I'm like, you just... You weren't into this from the beginning. Like, you had your mind made up going into the movie. And if you hate found footage, you're going to hate this movie. You're going to hate it. This isn't going to change that. Um, so I actually kind of take issue with how they advertised this and had all those quotes everywhere. The scariest movie ever. That never works. Never yeah. once has, has an, a movie been advertised that way and people walked out believing it was true. Yeah. So I take some issue with that. But for me personally, I can't speak for anybody else. I loved it. I was really, I was really surprised w- with how intense it was. Uh, but again, three or four moments in this movie where I was like, "Okay, let's move it along." But having said that, what would you take out? This movie's like eighty-five minutes long. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's true. And I mean, did you have any other negatives? Um, I think I, we kind of meshed in everything, right? I, I mean, I like I said, I saw it twice, and I think if we would have reviewed this after me seeing it once, I would have rated it higher than I'm going to. Because I think seeing it the second time, I was kind of like, okay. I definitely felt some of the pacing issues in the middle of the movie a little bit more. Yeah. Um, And I think if I want to nitpick it as like a horror fan, I think those found footage elements where it's clearly, like you had mentioned in the beginning, it just feels overproduced in some parts. Yeah. Um, So that kind of took me out. But that's really my only negatives with it. Yeah. One to ten, what would you give it? Um Okay, well, if I would have rated this the day of, I would have gone as high as a nine because I it was wow. it, it blew me away. Like I, I was really surprised, and it's if you know if people know me and they know I'm into all different types of movies, right? Um, I'm glad I saw it again because it definitely tempered my my experience. So I'm going to go with an eight out of ten on this movie. Really enjoyed it. Um, said it all. I thought it was great, but if you hate phone footage, just don't watch it. Yeah, just don't do it. What would you rate it? Uh, Seven point two. Um, I think mainly because of the pacing issues in the beginning, which mm-hmm. was a big, I mean, it was big for me. I was like, when I was watching it, I just said, this is like, they filmed the, these scenes in a film set, you know, and it just seemed a little bit overproduced. I didn't have, I didn't have so much of an issue with the, the wood scenes as much, no. but I mean, I guess in certain spots, you kind of, like you said, you could nitpick the, the shit out of this film. And really, I think if you just isolate that last 20 minutes or, show and, or so and show somebody that, I mean, it would freak anybody out. If they don't have any preconceived notions about what kind of movie this is or what it's a sequel to or anything that lasts, it is some of the most like straight up hardcore, intense stuff I'd seen in a theater in a while. Yeah. It really got to me and, and that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Some I think there's I don't know about a uh, what would that be, a sequel at this point? Oh this is a sequel. Would it would oh. this be a a third one to that? Technically, it's the third sequel or the second sequel because they did Blair Witch Two: Book of Shadows, which isn't a found footage movie. And if you've ever seen it, it's a kind of a weird movie. It's mm-hmm. not. It's kind of. It's very early two thousands. Lots of like goth people and like new metal and stuff like that. <laughs> it's a very strange movie, but um, I don't think you need to see that one. <laughs> yeah, because this this is straight up a sequel to the original. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. We'll see. There's, I felt like they left a little bit of a hook. Oh, are you asking if you think they could do another one? Yeah, and I, I think they will. I think they could easily because there's a lot of there's a lot of um, 
stuff that goes on that leaves the leaves the room. Oh yeah, there leaves room for that. I think that's another reason people aren't liking it because, like all found footage movies, it does not wrap things up in a bow. This gives you way more questions than answers. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it, it sort of leaves that mysterious awe to it, and it blows that Blair Witch mythology wide open. And and it's sort of like there's a lot of stuff going on in here, and there's clearly been a lot of people who've gotten lost in these woods before. Yeah, so we'll see. We shall see. Mm-hmm. So on to our high-priority news items. Herschel Gordon-Lewis, uh, legendary B, uh, B-horror movie director. Um, he's known as the godfather of gore. It's an RIP. He did pass away at the age of 87. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming you've seen many of his films? I have. I've seen uh, Wizard of Gore, The Gore Gore Girls. I mean, the, those movies, those titles right there should give you uh, 2000 Maniacs he did. Um just super low rent B movie stuff um, that's sort of referenced in a lot of. I know the movie Juno, <laughs> that quirky movie that came out like six or seven years ago. They mentioned Herschel Gordon Lewis and that, and he's just sort of if you're into to horror movies, uh, especially if you're sort of into older horror movies, he's a name that is uh, quite well known. Um, and I actually got to admit, I didn't know he was actually still alive. So when I saw that he had passed away, I was sad because uh, I actually have a. A, a trilogy of his movies on Blu-ray, and uh, I watched them recently, and then I saw that he passed away, so I kind of feel responsible in some way. Yeah. Well, but yeah, just, a... I mean, yeah, super low budget, just exploita- exploitation, gory, ridiculous stuff. I mean... That has its place, though. It does, you know? man. <laughs> and he obviously made a, a name for himself. It's like the kind you. of movie that if you were having, like, a big Halloween party, you would, like, put on in the background. Like so people can kind of like oh. look at that and you see like somebody just getting hacked to pieces and it's like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> uh, crazy stuff. Well, rest in peace, uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis. Yes, sir. Um, and then on to uh, Rogue One, a Star Wars. Pretty, I, I think this is a bigger, this is big news. This is huge news. Uh, is that they changed their composer, they switched out, they went to uh, Michael Giacchino. I think it's Giacchino. Giacchino. Um, and then they uh, replaced the wonderful Alec, Alexander Desplat uh, as the composer for the upcoming Star Wars standalone feature. Um, they're saying that it was scheduling issues um, tied to the supposed, supposed extensive uh, reshoots, possibly. Mm-hmm. You know, but um, and I've always wondered. I should look it up. Is it Alexandre Desplat or is it Desplat? Because he's Desplat. French. Oui. Any, anyways, I I have been excited. For Depla, I'm gonna call him Depla because it makes me sound fancy. Um, I've been excited for him to do the score for this forever because he is my favorite composer alive. Period. Right. Um, and not just that, but I think he is a totally different composer than John Williams, who is the only composer who's done any music for Star Wars movies. There has been different people for the uh, Clone Wars and Rebels shows. Um, so this definitely disappointed me. When I first read it, because I, I'm kind of biased, I love Desplat so much. Um, he would have brought something a little bit more brooding, a little bit with some different type of instruments, more of an emphasis on strings and pianos, I think, than Williams would have done. Um, and they replaced him with Giacchino, who is by no means a slouch. I mean, he is one of the most prof- prolific composers. He did Lost, which is a lot of people cite as a revolutionary score for, for uh, television. He won an Oscar for Up. He did J.J. Abrams' Star Trek movies, which is one of the reasons I think they called him in for this, because I'm sure J.J. has been called more than once giving advice on any Star Wars movie that's being done now. Yep. Um, 
but you know, I can't help but feel disappointed, but by no means is it going to somebody who's less capable. I just think that with all of these, while they're saying scheduling issues and Desplat is, Desplat is certainly a busy man, um, I can't help but feel that they're going with somebody who can maybe do something more similar to something Williams would have done. Yeah. And I think maybe with all these reshoots that were supposedly done, they maybe saw it like that original cut of the movie they saw and they realized it wasn't quite what they wanted. It wasn't quite on par with, with, with the tone. I listened to another Star Wars podcast and they said that. Well, their, their theory is that the tone of the movie just doesn't match what was already just established with uh, The Force Awakens. Um, so I don't know. I'm, it doesn't bum me out, but it does make me think that maybe they're playing this movie a little bit safer. Yeah. I, I can know. see that. Well, and the reshoots, I mean, the reshoots are, may almost bring a, a veil of mystery to this film because we don't know, no one really knows why they re, and there's a dozen different reasons you could reshoot a film. Right. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, it's a big change, but, uh, you know, if it was some guy I'd never heard of or somebody who's done scores I didn't care for, I would be more upset. I just like Alexandre Deblon quite a bit, so it bummed me out because I was really hoping to hear his Star Wars stuff. But, um, you know, Giacchino is is pretty great, so I'm sure he'll do some 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 magic for Rogue One here. Oh, yeah. And nothing can make me not excited for this movie. Well, right. I mean, and, and it's hard. I mean, the, the the scores for Star Wars movies are always a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like some other films. I mean, you can't really say uh, – you can't really compare any other. But, I mean, it's 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 uh, it's going to be a big piece of it. And it's always been John Williams. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is a big, big project. And I think if uh, – I don't know. I just I think maybe um, Giacchino is a little bit more in tune with the genre, and and they want to make sure it fits just right. And you know what? I was kind of thinking about this the other day too, and and maybe just in general, the original th- talk of Rogue One was that in general they were making something that was just totally different from other Star Wars movies. And I and I kind of feel like these reshoots and this new score, they maybe realize that maybe it's too soon to try something so out in left field. Right, they just reestablished the brand, reestablished the tone of Star Wars, and maybe they want to make one or two movies that are more similar to that before really doing something wacky. So that's a possibility too. That's no, just I, me I thinking, actually, though. you know, I'd never thought of that angle, but that's totally accurate when you think about it. Because a lot of, for a lot of kids specifically, this is the first they just witnessed their first Star Wars film. Yeah, that came Force, around in the their Force lifetime. Awakens generation. So it's, I agree with you. I think if they were to put something so far out in left field, I don't think that a lot of the new viewers would, would pick it up. I think it would be, a, be a, not a flop because it's still going to get Star Wars money, but it's not going to be the monster's financial success that they need it to be. Right, and I still think there's confusion out there of what this movie is. I think a lot of people, and it's no fault of theirs, they're not stupid. A lot of people think this is the sequel to The Force Awakens. There's just going to be a ton of people who think that, until the movie starts. Yeah. Even maybe during the movie, they'll be confused. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. It'll be interesting. Um, so on to our weekly segment by the numbers where we cover the top five grossing films in these United States and the occasional flops that do occur in modern cinema. Hmm. So number five, I'll start it off, is Snowden, the uh, picture of the hacker Eric Snowden. Huh? Is that his name? Snowden? Isn't it? Um why can't I think of this? Michael Snowden? Why don't we know this? Edward, duh. Edward Snowden. Yeah. Snowden. Uh, grossed a total of uh, just over $4 million, $4.05 million. 
Um, it has grossed a total of $15 million on a $40 million budget. It, it's, it, it is in its second week mm-hmm. um, on the charts, and it will continue to drop. Mm. This film's going to have a tough time breaking even. Mm-hmm. I just feel like I've heard a lot of saying, if you've seen the documentary that was made about Snowden, Citizen Four, the year before that, you've seen this movie already. Hmm. So I don't know. I I'm, I want to see it, but honestly, Oliver Stone doesn't excite me a whole lot anymore as a director. So I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so number four then is Bridget Jones's Baby, which made four point six million on its uh, second week, um, on a budget of thirty five million. So sort of same as Snowden, not doing great. And that's the second sequel to a movie that was a big hit in like two thousand. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of so, when, when I first saw previews for this, I was like, I don't know, this is gonna do that great because it's like, I mean, it's it was a popular film when it originally came out, right? But then it kind of died off over time. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, number. I've heard th- it was good though. I mean, if you're into that, if you're a Bridget Jones fanatic, if you're a big Zell- Zellweger fan, if you're a Renee Joneser, what? Jones- oh, a Joneser. <laughs> What? Uh, number three uh, was this week was Sully. Last week's number one uh, film. It grossed a total of thirteen point five million dollars, bringing its total gross to ninety two point one million dollars on a sixty million dollar budget in its third week. It's doing very well. It's kind of fun there too to see the, the- they have the theater count, and it looks like it went into. In se- usually, movies drop steadily in their theater count week after week. This movie got. An extra four hundred and thirty theaters it was put in, which is interesting. I didn't yeah. even I didn't even look at that popular movie. It's uh, really kind of puts this uh, Sullenberger character back into the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. And I we talked about the movie. I thought it was a great movie. Yeah, so glad to see it's doing well. All right, so number two then was a new release animated movie from Warner Brothers that uh, called Storks, which made twenty one point three million in its opening weekend on a seventy million dollar budget. So. uh Doing okay. I honestly didn't see too much of a push for this movie, and it didn't, in my opinion, didn't look very good. So, I yeah. don't know. Came in second. One of those animated films. I mean, they'll stick around for a little little while longer than a regular good old action film would or something like that. Um, the number one film this week was The Magnificent Seven, uh, the 2016 release. I assume that an older version was made. Uh, it is Sony. actually the second remake of a story. Originally, Seventh Samurai, Japanese movie, and then it was a Western in like the 60s or 70s. Really? And this, so this is technically the second time it's been remade. Huh. Interesting. But it grossed a total of $34.7 million uh, in its very first week. Uh, that obviously is its total gross on a $90 million budget. Mm-hmm. So unless this does pretty solid in its second week, you're probably going to see a pretty steep drop off. Yeah, I kind of feel like, though, this one will play well overseas. And this also seems like the mov- a movie to me that will be popular on, like, Blu-ray or something. Yeah. It looks fun. Up. I don't know. It's released pretty well strategically for, like, a Christmas release. Yeah, and pretty great cast, too. Chris Pratt, Denzel Washington, tons yeah. and tons of people. Oh, yeah. And I think the director was, uh, what's his face? Anton Fuqua, I think his name is. He did, uh, I think he did Training Day. Did he do, did he do Training Day? I think he might have. Yeah, I think he did. But uh, yeah, it looked kind of fun. But man, remake of a remake. I'll probably wait to see this when it's on Netflix or something. Yeah. So that's our by the numbers top five this week. Now on to predictions. Drum roll. Well, first of all, though, oh, from the, our last one. Last week we okay. did not so good. Well, technically the week before because we did unfortunately miss a week. Sorry, folks, but we are back now. Talking, talking to you. Talking to you. So my prediction, and it was 
Blair Witch. Yes. During Blair Witch's opening weekend, we were trying to guess how much it was going to make in its opening weekend. Do you remember the numbers? I have them written down. I I predicted a bold $55 million, which is insane. And I predicted $33 million. And drum roll, everybody. The actual opening weekend gross of Blair Witch was about $9 million. Yeah. So we both failed. Nobody gets a point this week. Um, We're going to keep tally. I won the first week with Sully because we're doing closest without going over. We both just overshot this one. Big time. (laughs) Um, We we clearly were more excited for this movie than most other people were. (laughs) So um, we were both wrong. So we lose this week. But uh, on to next week. On to next week. Take it away. So what we're going to do is we're going to predict the top grossing film next week. And we're going to predict its total gross. So we are changing it a little bit, right? A little bit. So instead of just picking one movie and guessing how much it's going to make, we're both going to guess individually what movie we think will be number one and how much that will make. Yep. And I think we'll do the same thing if we go over, neither of us win. Yep. So winner should go first. So... From the last week. So you technically so switches over. Yep, you'd go first. Okay, so I think the number one movie next week, the two big releases we have, that Miss Peregrine's Home for Weirdos or whatever, and then Deep Water, Her Horizon. Hey, don't don't forget about MS Donnie, The Untold Story. Okay, I'll factor that into my <laughs> equation here. All right, so I'm guessing Deep Water Horizon is going to come in first place. I am going to guess... September, October. I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna guess 55 million for Deepwater Horizon at number one. Okay. And it's the closest without going over. Correct. If you do like, let's stick to rounded millions. Rounded millions. <laughs> so you so you can't pick like 55 million in one dollar. Who had the highest bid? There's always that one bitch. dickhead on the prices, right? That's like, who had the highest bid? And they're like, oh, that guy for 1200 is like 1201 dollar. The guys at the bend of the line, mm-hmm. like flicking them off. Um, I'm gonna go with Deepwater Horizon as well. Mm. And I'm gonna say 35 million. 35 million? Did you Google something? No. I'm not sure I believe you. No, I have, I have not had access. I just literally was looking at the okay. upcoming films. But coming okay. out this week, we have, of course, oh, man, I lost my spot. We have Ma- Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, Deepwater Horizon, uh, Masterminds, Ooh. American Honey, mm-hmm. Queen of Katwe, which is getting a lot of marketing, uh, Clown Town, Denial, MS, the, MS Donnie, The Untold Story, on um, the Netflix, check this out, everybody, a documentary, the Amanda Knox documentary, which is going to be very interesting. Uh, the woman who was twice convicted for killing someone in Italy. So now that we both predicted, and I just looked up information, I think we both might lose again. First of all, the budget on Deepwater Horizon is $156 million. Jesus Christ. Well, I suppose it's like ma- monster special effects. Okay, and I swear to you, I didn't look at this, neither did Nate. So we're not lying to you. I just read this now. This is what their prediction is for week one. In the United States and Canada... In the United States is what we're focusing on here. Deepwater Horizon is projected to grow 16 to 20 million in opening weekend, which is significantly lower than either of our guesses. Yeah. Although some publications note Mark Wahlberg's films tend to outperform box office projections. Yeah. So I think you have a better shot than me at winning this we'll next see. week. We'll see. So I could go either way. I just kind of feel like 
I don't know. The reason I'm going a little bit higher is because I kind of feel, first of all, I think it'll make way more than the other movie, unless I'm totally wrong in that. Well, and I mean, the Miss Peregrine's um, Home for Peculiar, I mean, that's a really popular book. But you're right, you're right. books don't always lead to Well, let's success. see what they say about that one on here. Um, I thought Girl on the Train came out. I, I thought yeah, it, that's, that's not for a few weeks yet. It's projected to make between 25 and $30 million. So, okay, I guess box office people are saying that one's going to make more. I guess the reason I'm going with my gut on Deepwater Horizon is because I feel that people are kind of into the true story, right? And seeing how, how decently well Sully has done, people like that sort of triumphant American, you know. Hoorah. Ameri- like people doing intense stuff and surviving. I don't know. I just feel like it would draw more people. And I feel like Mark Wahlberg is a way bigger box office draw than anybody in Miss Pear. I guess it's Tim Burton, but he well, yeah, hasn't made a, a good movie in a long time. I, I guess Big Eyes was okay, but I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, again, it's it's the book element. It's a story. It's kids. It's a kids movie, isn't it? Yeah, isn't What's it, it rated? I don't know. PG? Miss Pear. PG-13, see? PG-13, ooh, living dangerously. Isn't that the same as Deepwater Horizon? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's Deepwater Horizon R. No way, it's R. Well, a lot of whatever. Our predictions are written and in uh, digital ink. We will not alter the numbers. The evidence is on this recording. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. But I truly, I'm actually really excited about the Amanda Knox documentary because it's a very, it's an ex- a very intriguing story. It's on Netflix. I feel like though the commercials for it, she's just like yelling at me. You know. Yeah, they're kind of like, weird. She's kind of a weird person. She's like yelling at me, and I'm like, don't yell. I'll watch your documentary. I'll don't watch worry. your documentary. Okay. Amanda. Amanda. We stop. got your. We got your back. We're gonna watch your your documentary. We can watch Ophelia. All right. Well, that's the movie of the week segment. So uh, when we come back, we're going to do our album of the week, Miles Davis's 1970 jazz epic. He does not play the jazz flute in, in that. Maybe he does. Maybe there's a flute in there somewhere. Uh, his album, Bitches Brew, when we come back, uh, you'll hear music from that album in the break. Weekly Neurosis will be right back. Back into Weekly Neurosis, I'm Nate. I'm Ethan. And now it's time for Album of the Week. And this week, we are going to be reviewing Miles Davis's 1970s jazz epic, Bitches Brew. So the background, Bitches Brew is a double album that was released in 1970 on Columbia Records. The album was a massive commercial success, but at the time of its release was met with mixed responses. Many people in the jazz community felt that Davis's movement away from traditional jazz sounds and towards significantly more rock-influenced freeform version of jazz, uh, now known as jazz fusion, very popular, 
was a sign of decline of jazz music. Miles Davis's own feelings towards his music and jazz in general was that moving forward and doing new things was imperative to keeping the music alive. In modern times, Bitches Brew is considered a classic jazz album ranking amongst the very best of the genre, an important milestone in music that showed how improvisational, freeform musicianship, and individual contributions great um, to a great whole could come together to make an unforgettable hypnotic music. Uh, the recording notes. The album was recorded in three days in 1969. It, and it's interesting note that while a few elements of each song were re- rehearsed before recording, a vast majority of the album was entirely improvised and the musicians had no idea before the sessions what the final result would be, which is amazing when you listen to it. Uh, during the recording process, Davis stressed how important it was for the musicians to pay attention to one another. Often through the uh, throughout the album, you can actually hear Davis talking to the musicians in the background, saying things like, keep it tight, or snapping his fingers to signal the tempo and show when a certain uh, when certain mus- musicians should play solos. Pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. What do you think of this? Or what oh, do you think of this? Yeah, yeah. Um, I Okay, I mean, I love this album. I think we talked last week about how difficult it would be to talk about this album. Um and uh, it is, it's hard to talk about because it is, it is truly, and an, an, it's, it's an experience. It's a, it's a huge, expansive, creative, and just masterful album. And uh, uh, for me, when I first heard it, it, it was sort of a landmark for me. And, and this isn't an album I grew up with or anything. This was only an album I discovered within the last five years or so. And it really sort of expanded my mind. And since I've... Uh, heard this album and a lot more of davis's jazz fusion stuff and other musicians uh experiments and in, in the genre i've grown a much bigger appreciation for things like ambient music and experimental music and i think a lot of it sort of roots back to, to me discovering bitches brew um because yeah bitches brew is it's crazy it's an unbelievable album there's uh pretty much every song on, on this thing is um super long um there's on the original release of the album. There's only uh, I believe one, two, three, four, five, six albums. But pretty much now, if you get it, if you stream it on Apple Music or Spotify, or if you get a CD, there's an extra song on there. But there's also a whole bunch of other versions with all these other songs and stuff. But uh, you know, the songs are mostly 20 minutes plus, and um, it, it's it's incredible. None of them sound the same. Uh, I think it, it ranges from hypnotic to catchy and just. I guess hypnotic is the way I like to say it. So I really love this album. I, and I don't know your background with albums, so I feel like it's one that you need to spend some time with. So yeah. I don't know. And I've, I've listened to it several, several times. I'd, I'd have to say maybe probably in the top 20 okay. in terms of the number of album times I've listened to it. But it's just, it's really strange because you can say that it has a song on there that's 20 minutes long. When you actually listen to it, it's in reality, it's maybe three or four songs kind of meshed together. And the way he bridges them... Um, it is just amazing. It's really incredible. But yeah, I, I agree with your assessment of it being like really hypnotic. Cause when I was listening to it this time around, I noticed myself like moving, mm-hmm. which Jay, it was almost like my brain by in no means was saying like, okay, dance. But I was sitting there and I was just, I found myself just moving mm-hmm. and that's how, how, what jazz is supposed to do to you. Right. Um, but I think to me, the biggest thing is if you listen to other jazz from around this time, it's so amazingly different. And it's so compared to music now, it's it's got you know twenty different layers of twenty different things going on. Um, I thought uh, he really uh, he totally sh- didn't just break the ice; he shattered it yeah. in terms of the genre. Yeah, it's just um, it's really crazy to listen to, and I, and I feel that 
if you sort of sink into the groove of the album, you really can get that feeling that Davis was going for, that feeling of, um, you know, feeling the different musicians go back and forth, playing parts off of one another and being sporadic and, and finding a melody and kind of going with it and just letting it go where it needs to go. Um, that may sound whatever to you, that may sound like super hip or, or you know, whatever. But I, I mean, for me, it works. And um, one of the reasons I like it is because I think every time I listen to it, I feel like I'm listening to something I've never heard before. Um, outside of a couple of moments to me that are very memorable, it isn't the kind of album you hum or sing. Well, first of all, it's a, it's a jazz fusion. There's no lyrics or anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's all just music, 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 and it, it's relentless. And there's no he did, there's no apologies here. Apologies here. Um, it's just some of the best musicians who've ever lived together making some of the the most creative music and. To me, it just really outlines, it's a really good album to point at somebody if somebody was like, well, what can music be? You listen to this and it's like, it can be anything. And and these songs sort of created themselves as they played them throughout the couple of days they were together recording it. And it's evident, you know, the the recording is there forever. And uh, it, it's just remarkable. Yeah. And the fact also, too, that it was live recorded. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of artists that have said, oh yeah, we live record, but they don't live record all of an album or, you know, I mean, there's a few of them out there that still do, you know, more power to you. But, um, I think that the fact that this was, like you said, it was an original piece of time and space in addition to just being an album, it makes it even more special mm-hmm. because you couldn't, a lot of these songs, if they went back to play them, could they play them? Yeah, sure. But I don't think it'd have the same kind of lure that this, this sound does. And I really like what you said, too, about it being when someone said, like, what can music be? This is evidence that it can be anything because he took instruments that were never being used together and he threw them together and created this amazing ensemble. Right. Um, I, I just saw I'm reading a quote here from Dave Holland, who it looks like is a jazz musicianist and or is that a jazz uh, musician? And he said, and I, I think this sort of encapsulates our feelings on it. He says, Bitches Brew has a kind of searching quality because Miles was onto the process of discovering this new music and developing it. And that's really what you're hearing. And, and I and I like that you said that. You if you play if if these guys, even a day after they recorded one of these songs, got together and did it again, it would sound different. And that's evident. If you look up live performances of quote unquote these songs, they outside of pieces, they don't resemble these recordings because the point isn't to create some sort of n- you know, I use the word coherent in sort of an abstract way, but they're not, they weren't set out to make a coherent record necessarily. They were creating an idea of what music could be and, uh, what, what it could be was pretty, was, is pretty much anything. Yeah. And I think we should note too, that this is a long album. It's 94 minutes and 11 minutes long. It is a super long album and it's not for the impatient. I think if you are brave, um, check it out, but you will probably know within a minute or two, (laughs) If you like what you're hearing you or, or not. not, yeah. If you, I mean, if you're a jazz, I don't. And I, that's the thing. I don't know the percentage. I think it's pretty small of people in our generation that like jazz. And I think if you're into jazz, you've probably heard this album. Yeah. Already. Oh, for sure, for <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. But if you're just, you know, if jazz is something that interests you, um, if you've listened to Miles, some of Miles Davis's other work, like kind of blue is sort of his most famous thing. And that's a very commercial, like it's a commercial, like friendly album. Cause it has like five, four or five minute long mm-hmm. songs. And there's like one couple little seven, eight minutes. This one has got, like we said, it's, it's six, six songs. And then there's, well, let's no, run through it. 
opening song in here is Pharaoh's Dance, which runs at exactly 20 minutes. Yep. Um, the second song, and actually I have the vinyl of this, so that one song takes the entire half of that <laughs> disc up. The second song, which takes up the second half, is the title track, Bitches Brew, which is 26 minutes, 59 seconds. And I will note, saying that that is my favorite cut on this album. Um, his Miles De- Indra- Miles Davis, if if people don't know, he is a tr- the trumpet is his primary instrument. Mm-hmm. His trumpet playing on that song to me is just remarkable. That haunting sort of groove they start when and he, and he sort of blasts out like some sort of horn in the fog or something, and it sort of tapers off and goes up. And though it's just bl- it's just brilliant. Um, so then the third song on here is Spanish Key, which is seventeen minutes twenty nine seconds. Then the shortest song on here that's only four minutes and 26 seconds is John McLaughlin. McLaughlin? Yep. Right. And then uh, the song Miles Runs the Voodoo Short, which is 14 minutes and four seconds. And on the original release of the album, the, this next song, Sanctuary, which, which runs 10 minutes and 52 seconds, was the final song, but by far the most common version you'll see of this album has another song called Fio, Fio, F-E-I-O, I don't know how you pronounce it, um, which is an 11 minute and 51 second song. Um, so I think I would recommend somebody listening to this to listen to it through headphones. Um, especially if you're listening to a, a, a very good stereo, uh, cut of it. Cause it's a lot going on between your ears. <laughs> yeah. And you, or you could be real classy and listen to it on like some good speakers or something, drinking some wine. Well, I, like I wine said, and I, or cheese. I have the vinyl and I have a, I don't have the 5.1 set up, but you know, it's a, I have a stereo cut of the album anyway, so I have my three speakers set up, and I'll sit right there, and it's perfect. Perfect. Sounds great. It's awesome. And it says here also, too, that it was originally billed as uh, Directions and Music by Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. It was the original, one of the original working titles, I would assume. So this is a, I do have to say, it's a tough one to rate. Not for me. Well, I mean, it's, it is, but it's, you know, other people may... Right. You listen to it and give it like a two. What would you give this though? One to ten. Oh, it's uh, to me, it's everything I want in music. It's a ten. There's not yeah. a single moment in this that I could. I, I'm not. I am not a musician. I have have I have no say. And there's nothing I could say to somebody as brilliant as Miles Davis was, or any one of the studio musicians who was on this album. There's nothing they could have done to make it. I can't even say better or worse. Just different because it's its own thing. So I give it a ten. I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah. I'm in the same exact boat. I'd give it a 10 for the simple fact that it is like a one-off. Like a lot of things, this was a one take on a lot of these songs. Mm -hmm. They somehow came out perfect. Yeah. It's it's unbelievable. And it's just, it's an incredible, and it does, you can, and I'm sure a a music historian could probably pan out how this affected music down down the line. Right. Another one of those cradle albums, as I like to call them. Absolutely. And even if you just go to Wikipedia and read through some of the, uh, there's a whole section called Reception and Legacy that talks about sort of its place in music. And actually, um, I first became aware of this album when I watched Ken Burns, uh, you know, the documentary and his jazz series. And I was waiting, they talked a lot about Miles Davis, but they mainly talked about his work in the fifties with, you know, kind of blue, uh, those albums. Um, and I was sort of distraught to learn that they lumped all of Jazz Fusion into like one mention in the final episode. And they sort of summed it by saying that it was the death of jazz music. And I was like stunned. And I was like, what? So then I went and listened to Bitches Brew. And I was like, are you joking me? And then if you dig more into that, there is still to this day in jazz music a rift of people who think that this whole Jazz Fusion 
branch of the genre was not the right direction. A lot of people thought as saw it as a sort of weird commercial cash grab, which to me makes no sense because there, there is n- zero anything commercial about this album. So I guess I don't really fully understand that. But um, oh man, I don't know. I just love it. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's really incredible from from head to and then it has a legacy in music and it has a legacy in beer and a classic uh, album cover as well. Yeah. Great album cover. And I'm still I'm still tripped out by the fact that we're drinking Bitches Brew. Bitches Brew while reviewing Bitches Brew. That's I don't think this is ever going to happen again. If only we were listening to it. This is a one take show. This is orig- this is an original piece of art too. <laughs> we don't that? have nearly the the no. talent that Miles Davis had though. <laughs> oh, crazy stuff. Great album. Mm-hmm. Give it a shot. Try to emphasize. This is an album. That's an album you could listen to if you're drunk. Man, and just look at Sometime, if, if anybody's listening, just go on to and look at the personnel on this album. The number of people who were playing at once. Miles Davis, trumpet, Wayne Shorter, soprano saxophone, Benny Maupin, bass clarinet, piano left, piano right, electric guitar, bass, electric bass, drums, two drums, congas. I mean, it's unbelievable the amount of people who are contributing to these songs. It's crazy. Yeah. And they got... Uh... I think they get royal. They'd get royalties for that then. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it depends on who owns the rights nowadays. I don't know. Yeah. What kind of contracts they had. Ooh, and I just read too that Tom York, of course, of Radiohead fame, notes the album as one of the main influences on the famous album OK Computer. So that's right there one example of a massive album that wouldn't probably wouldn't exist without this one. <laughs> Composition. Awesome. So on to our uh, high-priority news items for the world of musica. Um, amidst rumors that uh, Daft Punk were organizing a massive tour, I think I've heard this about five times in my lifetime, <laughs> uh, it has been revealed to be untrue, once again, that they'll not be touring. Um, so say it isn't so. Mm-hmm. This has happened so many times. Well, and it's funny because even after their massive, massive hit, Random Access Memories, they haven't toured. Yeah. Huh. It's just, just weird. The craziest thing. You know how big that tour would be? Well, and they did right after, um, wh- one more time, or what's the... Discovery. Discovery. Sorry. Total brain fart. Which we reviewed on this podcast. They did a, they did it to like a 12 city tour and they like just packed or like monster crowds. Mm-hmm. They sold out like Madison Square Garden before like ticket brokers were even like a thing. Mm-hmm. They sold it out in like an hour. And yeah. if you listen to that, they did. They released a like a tour album after that, and that was Alive. even huge. Yeah, and that was an awesome. That's it's an like awesome one of the most album. famous live albums of the last twenty years. Easy. I mean, yeah. it's a great album. Yeah. Well, that's when you realize these guys are, are total fucking geniuses when it comes to electronic music. I just wonder, like, why not? I mean, maybe they're. I just wonder what their aversion to touring is. I mean, and it's not super uncommon. It's their. I mean, the Beatles didn't tour. The the most famous part of their career. But um, I just wonder what, what their reasoning is. And they, they're reclusive individuals. They're not going to come out and talk about why they won't tour. They're just not going to. And we're going to have to live with that. Yeah. Because um, I, I, they're a group I would go out of my way to see because it would be an event. It's not just a show you go to on a Saturday night. It's Daft Punk. I mean, that's a that's like a that – bring they're the kind of group that brings people from all walks of life together. Yeah. So kind of a bummer. I think it would have been fun even though in our location here in uh, Wisconsin – the closest they would probably play to us is Chicago, would be my guess. Yeah. Um, maybe. They'd probably, they'd probably do, like, an honest to God, like a New York, L.A. That'd probably be it. Yeah. North American. 
I could see them doing like a massive tour, like a uh, a festival, something like a Bonnaroo, maybe headlining one night. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very odd thing. You know, and they'll probably we'll probably never know why they have an aversion to touring. But even after Random Access Memories, they um, it's the guy who did. He has a documentary about himself, but he's like done some of the biggest tours. Hmm. He was apparently brought in to consult, Um, and they were like, "Oh, they're going to do it." But he even said in past interviews that he went to talk with them about it, but they didn't really seem interested. They were just kind of like, "Well, well," and it makes me. I my gut reaction is to say, "Well, maybe they're." Too focused on creating new music, but yeah, <laughs> that's clearly not high on their agenda. Random Access no. Memories is already four years old. Yeah. I mean, the, and that's not a new release anymore. And it, before that, it was ten years before their previous album. So they're not exactly. Tr- I know they just collaborated with um, the Weekend for a new song, but that's one song. Yeah. You know, I mean, how much time does that really take? I don't know. I'll bet you anything. The Weekend was fucking nervous. Like he's such guys. a he's such a famous guy, but I guarantee they trump him in a minute in terms of like. Yeah. Well, even Kanye West, like they they did they produced one of the songs in his album Jesus, and even somebody like Kanye West was probably well, like, F- what do I say? Yeah. <laughs> How do I what do I say to these guys? Like, who are these people? <laughs> yeah, like even like Nile Rodgers or whatever for Random Access Memories, who's like a monster musician and yeah. super famous. Disco. Even he got called and they said, we would like you to at least sample for us. And he said he like started crying Yeah, because it's like such a huge deal. Well, look at that. I think we've both talked before on the podcast about how that album to me stands as like a, as like a landmark of music mm-hmm. in the last decade. To me, Random Access Memories is one of those like just big event albums that lives up to its hype and it was celebrated and just great music, great songs. Yeah. So... And I mean, like you look at like get. I, I just remember when it, right when it came out, I was in Milwaukee at the time, and um, like Get Lucky came on, mm-hmm. and every fucking person in this huge restaurant started like at least if not like bobbing their heads, they were like dancing, and I was like, this is what music is supposed to do. It's just such a great album. Like e- even like in my in my own personal zeitgeist, even like the album cover, like it's to me, it's already like a classic cover. Yeah, I don't know, man. It's it's just great. My favorite zeitgeist. Yeah, zeitgeist. My favorite um, song on the album is "Touch," though I love that song. Yeah. With a, it's just beautiful with the strings and the melody. Ugh, so good. Touch, sweet touch. Nice. That sounds exactly like it. Thanks, man. Uh, but that's yeah. Once again, touring, not touring. Um, and the music industry is starting to crack down on YouTube um, to MP3 converting websites. Um, the YouTube MP3 is apparently one of the most uh, visited websites that exists, and now the industry is trying to fight back against stream ripping, mm-hmm. which is very common. And Pitchfork reported this. They'd be on this, like, white on rice. I read something, I think it was in this article that I read on Pitchfork, um, that something like 80% of people who are under the age of 30 use these types of websites to get songs. So this is kind of a big deal because... um. These sites, there's hundreds of them that mm-hmm. you can you do this with. And, uh, well, they're starting to crack down on it, I guess. Um, yeah. I guess that they must have done the the calculations and there was a, some sort of damage being done somewhere. But um, I don't know. I kind of feel like if you put your music up on a place like that, you just got to kind of accept it. Yeah. Because I don't think it's ever going to go away. There's always, this is just like torrenting movies and music. It's never going to go away. I don't care how much studios and people fight back. The way that the smart 
people in music and movies are fighting back against this thing is by making the music more available. Yeah. Movies are becoming available to rent and stream on Netflix, on rental services at home versus having to go to the theaters. That's how you combat these things. You get to the people because they want it now. Yep. And they want it as cheap as possible. Yeah. But at least they're not going after the people downloading it because that was the big issue that happened when, you know, Napster. Right. Because, I mean, to, to me, that's that's total. I mean, it's un, not unfair, but, you know, th- we're not the people like that created a product that can just, you know, free for it wasn't just a free for all. I mean, right. if you tell anyone, hey, here's a bunch of stuff totally free, they're going to go nuts. Well, that's the problem. Like, I, I think what they were trying to do was make an example of some people. Like, really punish a couple of individuals, get them in the news, and scare people into not downloading. Yeah. That didn't happen. They scared some people, but people just found safer ways to illegally download stuff. So I think now at least they're trying to go after the sources instead of finding the people who are doing the downloading. The seeders for these things are the issues, not the downloaders. Yeah. The people who are... And I think with music, it's maybe less of a problem than it is with movies where... So we've seen it with some high-profile releases a couple of years ago. Expendables three, an HD like brand new rip of that, got put online like a month before it came out in theaters, and the movie bombed because everybody who wanted to see it saw it already. Okay. <laughs> That'd be for you. Kind of feel for the actors at that point in a way. I mean, I guess they already got paid, but right. Yeah, no, it's just one of those things where what do you what do you do about it? And I think a lot of studios, when it comes to music or movies, have both kind of step back and be like okay we're never going to stop it the internet's too big yeah there's too many laws in these different countries and where do you draw the line that well how about we need to produce things and make them available to people in the most efficient way possible yeah that's why i sort of applaud original movies like last year one of the best movies i think we saw last year was beasts of no uh, beasts of no nation right onto netflix never even thought twice about having to torrent it or download it it was just there yeah so who doesn't have a netflix account yeah. So whoever's listening, if you don't have one, come on. Come on. Come on, just get come it. Come on. Watch Lost. It's like, what, nine bucks? Yeah. 9.99. Watch Isn't Lost. Isn't that what it is? Watch I don't even Brick. know how much it is. I don't even know anymore. I got an email a couple months ago. Your price is going to go up. I was like, whatever. Yeah, it's like, oh, $1. Unless it's, it, unless it's like $10, I'm not getting rid of Netflix. <laughs> yeah. I remember for a while it was like, there's the seven ninety nine. You got the stream and the DVD. The disc, yeah. And then well, they changed it to nine ninety nine for each. And everyone was like, Netflix is going to go out of business. And I was like, no, they're not. When I first got Netflix, I was a freshman in college, and that was when it was only discs. Yep. And it was only discs. And I will never forget when they rolled out the Instant Watch. And I remember opening up my browser, getting an email about, now, hundreds of titles are available to stream instantly. And I'll never forget opening up and scrolling through the movies and just thinking it was a scam. I was like, I can just watch these right now. I can just stream this right now. I thought it was obscene. Like, I I couldn't believe it. I'm like, I don't have to pay extra for this? Yeah. It blew my mind. And, of course, that's all we we do now is is stream. So it's the total opposite of how it used to be. But I'll never forget that moment because I watched the first movie I ever streamed on Netflix. I'll never forget it. It was David Lynch's movie, Inland Empire. And the quality was god-awful at the yeah. time. I oh, mean, it used to suck. It was, ter- it was terrible, yeah. but my mind was so blown that it was like 2008, and I was like, I can stream all these movies. And they're just here. I remember I watched the whole Masters of Horror series. Oh, man. And we're spoiled now. It was a good day. It was a great day. Well, and actually, it. it's pretty smart what they did because um, I watched an interview with their CEO, mm-hmm. and the reason they got they split the two was that they wanted to kind of have the 
like disc shipping service die off because it's so expensive. Right. And they wanted to put more money into individual and original produced content because they wanted to be the next HBO. They are. And now they are. I mean, hey, speaking of Netflix, have you finished How Far Are You in House of Cards? I, I took a I took Are you joking major, me? Yeah. You're not even done with season one yet? Hey, man, I, well... No, I don't care. We'll get to it in Obsessions. We'll get to it in Obsessions. Okay. What, right now, Ethan, what are you obsessed oh with? Oh, my God, I'm so boring because I'm pretty sure I've said this like eight times. Grateful Dead. Grateful Dead. The band. I saw Dead and Company earlier this summer. It was beautiful. I've been listening to their music pretty much every day obsessively. I've been reading some books and history, watching interviews on YouTube. I just feel like I'm learning more about the history of the band. And uh, I just feel, I just have, feel like I have a connection with it, you know? It makes me feel special. So, boring. Nice. Boring answer. But hey, I, I'm not going to lie here on Weekly Neurosis. Yeah. So what are you obsessed with? Never. Um, right now, I'm obsessed with... Uh, the Dark Tower series, Ooh. and I just finished my first book. <gasps> so you it's got like the first book in like three years. I finished. That's amazing. So you read the part, and this isn't a spoiler, where he's talking to the man in black. Yep. And he talks about the blade of grass being cut in the cells in the grass. And that's like mind blowing. Yeah. I was like ten when I read that, and my mind melted into my lap. <laughs> and then like the new book started, and it, that's even interesting too. So it gets better and better. Yeah, and oh, better. I, can, I can already tell. Although the books get longer and longer and longer, too. Yeah. Notice my, the, the second one was significantly fatter than the first one. In the Texas, I'm pretty sure the second one is like five times longer than the first one. <laughs> yeah. So, but I'm, I'm going to have fun with it. it. Finished it. Book Got it, one. Book one down. Gonna have, keep reading. Keep, keep on trucking. Oh, so good. Dark Tower. Yeah. So that's been the Elixir episode. I think mm-hmm. movie of the week. I think since we said it's going to be the number one movie, should we just do Deepwater Horizon? Deepwater Horizon feels Watch good to me. It looks Mark like a f- Wahlberg just get. Hey guys, I'm on a, I'm on an oil rig, guys. And an oil rig getting not, blown up. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fucking die today. Die. <laughs> That's a terrible Mark Wahlberg impression. Deepwater Horizon. I feel like it's just going to be him running around. Hey guys, my wife's Kate Hudson. Whoa, whoa. I was watching Family Guy the other day, and you know how they have all those non sequiturs? Peter Griffin was like, you're more confused than Mark Wahlberg in any one of his movies. <laughs> and then it cut to like an animated version of Mark Wahlberg, and he was like, wait a minute, where am I? What the? Hey, what's going on here? What? What? What's going What? <laughs> that's true, though. And that's what Deepwater Horizon's going to be. He's going to be like, what? Where are we going? How do we get? What? <laughs> and then anger, usually followed by anger. Mm-hmm. Or talking to a tree in the happening. Ooh. You said it, not me. Classic right. cinema. So, yeah, we'll go with Deepwater Horizon. Album, beer, to be determined. Mm-hmm. Something based on oil. Ooh. Oil. That'd be interesting. It makes me want to watch There Will Be Blood. <laughs> yeah, I know. But right? we can't do two movies. I mean, we could, but we're we not could. going to. We'll do whatever we want. It's my podcast. It's my bro. podcast, bro. All it's right. us talking to you. So yeah, Deepwater Horizon, something else. Might be Miss Peregrine's. Who knows? I'm nah, I'm not gonna No, I don't want to see that. <laughs> All right. So Deepwater Horizon it is. Once again, this has been Weekly Neurosis for the Elixir episode. I am Nate. I'm Ethan. And everyone, please take care and go to see Deepwater Horizon. And Blair Witch, because it was good. Don't listen to critics. Don't do it. Don't ever listen to critics. Bye. Except for us. Everyone take care.